Amen. I trust you brought a Bible with you this evening and you're prepared to study God's Word. Psalm 8 this evening, as we just read responsively, Psalm 8. I prepared some notes, provided for them for you there in the church foyer. I've titled my message, The Excellence of God and the Significance of Man, A Comparative Study of Theology and Anthropology. <laughs> And that is a heavyweight title, but I trust will be understood as we work our way through Psalm number 8. Psalm 8 is a poetic picture of the significance of man framed by the excellency or the excellence of God. That is, Psalm 8 helps us to properly understand who we are after we first appreciate who God is. And the message of the music this evening has prepared our minds and our hearts for this very theme. Let me pause briefly for prayer and then we'll unpack Psalm 8. God in heaven above, we hallow your name and we bring you our worship and our adoration and our exaltation. We praise you for who you are. And God, we're humbled by thoughts of of who you are, that you would consider us at all and that you would love us and that you would send your son to die for us, to redeem us. I pray, God, that as we read Psalm 8, you would enlarge our minds and our hearts with an appreciation for who you are and clarity about who we are. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 8 is a poetic picture of the significance of man that's framed by the excellency of God. Let's look at the frame. First, the frame in Psalm 8, verse number 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Look to the end of Psalm 8. That's verse number 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The first verse and the last verse of Psalm 8 serve as bookends or as a frame, if you will, that proclaims the excellency of God. The excellence of God, number one, the marvelous name of God. The marvelous name of God. Now it appears to us in English that God's name is declared in duplicates. O Lord, our Lord. However, your English Bible has probably printed that duplicate differently. The first is printed in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It indicates the Hebrew name behind this English translation is the Hebrew Jehovah or Yahweh. The first name, Jehovah or Yahweh, speaks of God as the self-existing one. It's the way that God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, the, the I am the Hebrew verb, I am, declaring God to be the eternal, self-existing God, Jehovah Yahweh. The second, Lord, is printed capital L, then lowercase o-r-d, and that indicates to us that the Hebrew name behind this English translation is the, the Hebrew Adonai. And the name Adonai speaks of God as our Lord or our Master. And so literally, verse number one and verse number nine could read in this way, O Jehovah Yahweh, our Adonai. How excellent is your name, both Yahweh and Adonai, in all the earth. David is saying, O self-existing God, you are our personal, possessive 
Lord and Master, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And in that way, David frames this psalm, verse 1 and verse 9, with the marvelous name or names of God. I have presented a series of studies on the names of God over the years on a Wednesday evening series here at Fourth Baptist as well as in the Twin Cities Bible Institute class. And it's probably a series that bears repeating again for, as I've copied there on the back of your notes, on January 7th of 1855, Charles Spurgeon, then the the minister at the New Park Street Chapel in Southward, England, began his Sunday morning sermon in this way. Allow me to read for you what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, the highest science... The loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity, no subject of contemplation will tend more to to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the knowledge of the Godhead. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul So calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is a subject, it is to this subject that I invite you this morning. And it's in that way that Pastor Charles Spurgeon, at the time only 20 years old, began his Sunday morning message but what he said then is true even now, more than 150 years later. You can find that quote in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And so consequently, it is to our benefit to muse upon the person of God, to think upon the character of God, to meditate upon the, the names and the attributes of God, the excellency of God in his names. And that series on the names of God here in Psalm 8, we have Yahweh, the self-existing God. We have Adonai, Lord or Master. But the excellency of God is not only seen or discovered in his marvelous name, that's who he is. It's also seen in his creation, that's what he has done. That's number two, the creative power of God. The creative power of God And look again at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. There's two illustrations of the creative power of God that are found here 
in these verses. And the first is, is the, the illustration of the, the creative power of God in the universe, in the heavens. And on the occasion that you are outside on a dark summer's night, or I suppose on a dark winter's night, no reason to be outside on a dark winter's night, but perhaps you are outside on a, a dark evening and you were to lie on your back somewhere outside of the, the Twin Cities, and you were to stare at the sky and see the spectacle of the heavenly lights stretching from horizon to horizon, you cannot but acknowledge the creative power of God. I remember on occasion being out west in the mountains and seeing the Milky Way, that white band of light that that stretches across the sky. I remember on another occasion years ago in Bible College in northern Wisconsin of, of seeing the northern lights the auroras borealis, and, and those sheets of colors that, that wave through the sky. It's, it's incredible. And it convinces us of the, the creative power of God. If you ever look through a telescope or try to measure the distance between the heavenly bodies, it, it's enormous, and it speaks to the creative power of God. Of God, But there's not only that first illustration of, of the, the heavens, there's another illustration of the creative power of God, and that is there in verse number two, the infant child. And in contrast to the magnificence of the heavens, you have the, the miracle of a newborn baby. And while a baby can only utter helpless cries from their mouths, yet even they can give testimony to the creative power of God. Recently, in our church family, there have been some babies who have been born. I I think there perhaps might be others who are on the way. And it's impossible to not look into the face of a newborn baby and not marvel at the complexities of human life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, The Bible tells us that God ordained the weak to confound the wise and the marvelous creative power of of that baby. So we have two extremes of God's creative power. First, we have the the magnificence of the universe. We have the miracle of a newborn. We have the force of the universe. And we have the frailty of a human life. And they are equally marvelous both demonstrating the creative power of God in that general revelation. Unfortunately, today, man rejects God's creative power as seen in the heavens and as seen in that new baby's life. We, we seek to conquer space by going to the moon, going to Mars. We're looking for the, the meaning and the origin of life. I think it's a worthy pursuit. I, I just lament how that astronomers cannot recognize the creative power of God as they spend their careers exploring the expanse of the heavens. At the same time, we then exploit and we destroy the beginning of life through abortion. We reflected on that last Sunday evening and science considers the unborn infant just a a mass of fetal tissue. And the irony that's there for the astronomer or for the abortion doctor to reject the creative power of God in either case. But folks, Yahweh is glorious and, and that makes the case for his excellency. So you think of the title that, that I've, I've given this study, The Excellence of God and the Significance of Man 
a comparative study of theology and anthropology. So we begin with our theology, our excellent God. But then the significance of man, the excellence of God and the significance of man. Look at verse number three. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, when I think about your creative power, David is saying, verse number four, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Now, verses 3 and 4 parallel David's thinking in verses 1 and 2. First the heavens and then humankind. Verse 1 spoke of the heavens. Verse 2 spoke of man. Verse 3 speaks of the heavens. Verse 4 speaks of man. And the point of the, of, of the significance of man is, is number 3 in your notes, the human frailty of man. So, so David is contrasting, comparing or contrasting the creative power of God, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the things that you have ordained with the frailty of man by simply asking the question, what is man? Now, for all of human history, that has been a philosophical category to understand who man is and what man is and how we got here and why we're here and where we're going and, and where we'll end up. And every great thinker in all of history has asked this question. Even, even in modernity, we're asking the question, what is man? And so we, we answer the question in these ways. First, we might answer the question with materialism. Materialism says that man is a portion of matter, a collection of molecules. You are what you eat if man is simply material. Or we answer the question with psychology. Psychology says that man's creature is formed by heredity. Everything is determined by the gene. You are where or what you were born. Or in other ways, sociology answers the question, says that man is determined by your group and by your environment, the, the collective rules, and you are whoever's around you. Or how about philosophy saying that man is a thinking animal and the mind is what man makes man unique. You, you are what you think. And I think therefore I am. How about existentialism? Existentialism says that man is what he makes himself to be. You are what you do. And this is man's explanation of man. This is a, a human worldview of anthropology, the study of man. But what about a biblical anthropology? What does the Bible say about man? If we were to do a topical study this evening, we would learn, you know, that man was created from the dust of the ground. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we could rightly be called dirt bags because we, in fact, we are. We're just made from dust and someday to dust we will return. We know biblically that man is sinful and depraved. We cannot do good. In fact, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags to God. So we are sinful, corrupt, wicked. There is none righteous. We know that man, his life is like a vapor, appears for a time and then vanishes away. We're like the grass that grows up and then it's cut down. And none of this is flattering, but this is a biblical anthropology. This is a biblical worldview regarding manhood. 
And if you look at the size and the strength of the created world and you understand that Yahweh or Adonai created it all, we can do nothing other than to admit our frailty in comparison to him. That was Job's conclusion in the book of Job. He abhorred himself after comparing himself to Almighty God. Furthermore, not to be technical, but after all, it is the Sunday evening crowd, right? And, and you like some meat and potatoes to dig a little deeper. The first word translated man, here in verse number four, look at verse four, man. It's not the normal word for man. The familiar and frequent word for man that you would be familiar with is the word Adam, which is why we know of the first man as, as Adam. This is the word here, it, it's, it's uh, the, the word enosh, which is also translated man, but it describes the weakness and the mortality of man, the frailty of man. And so we recognize the creative power of Yahweh in the heavens and in the life of a newborn. We recognize the powerful forces of the heavens and the pathetic frailty uh, of our mortality, our Enosh. And then the greatest marvel of all is that God is mindful of us. God, how great you are and how small we are and yet you think on us. In the world of human kings, a peasant subject might exist unknown and uncared for in the furthest reaches of the kingdom. In fact, that's who we are. Nobody in Washington, D.C. knows our names or cares about our names. In the halls of government and in the, the, the upper echelons of society, Nobody knows your name or my name. Nobody cares about us. And yet, Yahweh, the self-existing God, our Adonai, our Lord and Master, knows us personally. He's not only mindful of us, he knows our names. He knows the hairs on our head. And so the, the title, I hope, is becoming clear. The excellence of God, the significance of man a comparative study of theology, the study of God, and anthropology, the study of man. The significance of man compared to God is we're so frail. So much for our self-esteem, but yet our self-image when we understand that Yahweh knows us, sees us, cares about us, that Adonai is mindful of us. That's a blessing, but there's more. Still speaking to the, the significance of man, we have the frailty of man, but then number four, the ordained responsibility of man, and I know your notes are complete, but we're not nearly done. The ordained responsibility of man, and there are great questions among the Bible interpreters as to the meaning of these next couple verses, and so you can set aside the notes, we're just going to use our Bibles, and we're going to ask and answer some questions, I hope that it don't do more damage than good, there are two in interpretive questions we need to ask, the first, verse number five, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Speaking of man, now, both the King James Version and my new King James read angels. You have made him a little lower than the angels. The ESV 
The NIV, perhaps you're carrying, read heavenly beings. The New American Standard, if you're carrying that, a little lower than God. Now, when our English translations differ from one another, um, I like to inquire why they differ. Why the difference in English translation? And to do that, you must read the original language, in this case, Hebrew. And I did have two years of Hebrew under Dr. Roy Beecham at Central Seminary. However, much of it is lost um, to the fog of my old age. But, But I can give you some of it here. The Hebrew word is Elohim. You have made him a little lower than Elohim. It's the same term used as a name of God. How is it that it became translated as angels in my New King James? In Hebrews, here's the answer. In Hebrews 2, verse number 7, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, verse number 5. And in that quotation, the author uses the Greek word for angels, angelos. Now, why did the author of Hebrews use the Greek word angels when the Hebrew word is Elohim or God? The answer is because the author of Hebrews would have been using the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we know of as the Septuagint, the Septuagint, okay? So how do the translators of the Greek Septuagint come up with the translation of angels from the word Elohim, that name for God? And the answer is, I don't know. But I know that God has providentially preserved his word over the centuries, and so I trust it's. It was Samuel Clemens, also you know him as Mark Twain, who once said, it isn't the things in the Bible I don't understand that bothers me, it's the things I do understand in the Bible that bother me. And so we have a, a little bit of a, of a textual challenge here, but while this may be ambiguous, I, I think it's nonetheless very clear Here's the point. God has bestowed the highest honor possible of any earthly creature by creating man only a little less elevated than the beings that occupy the heavenly sphere. Whether that is Elohim or whether that is angels, whether that is God or whether that is the heavenly created beings, the angels, humans have been catapulted and promoted far beyond our weaknesses and our insignificance. We are crowned with glory and honor. We are adorned like kings and priests. We, we, who would wear crowns to signify their significance and their position? And so there's an interpretive dilemma there in verse number five. For you have made them a little lower than the angels or Elohim, the heavenly beings. There's a, a second interpretive decision we have to make here, and, and that is that the writer of Hebrews, again, Hebrews chapter two, Cites Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and the Hebrews passage seems to make a connection assigning Psalm 8 to Jesus. So we've got to go there. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, we're in the deep weeds now just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2, and look with me in your New Testaments, Hebrews 2, look at verses 6 through 8, 6 through 9 perhaps. And tell me if this doesn't, in fact, reflect Psalm 8. Hebrews 2, verse number 6. But one testified in a certain place, we know that certain place, 
to be Psalm 8, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. There's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, a little lower than angels or Elohim. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now, I don't think that Psalm 8 is speaking of the Messiah. I think Psalm 8 is speaking of of mankind in general. In Hebrews, the author is speaking of Jesus, and I think the connection is in Jesus becoming one of mankind, lower than the heavenly beings, and that man is physical, and the heavenly beings are, are, are spirit beings. Angels are heavenly creatures. Man is an earthly creature. Angels don't die. Physical man does die, which is what Jesus would experience as a man. So man is lower than the angels in the same way that Jesus was lower than the angels. My conclusion is that we are lower in our physical being. Back to Psalm 8. Back to Psalm 8. Allow me to read verses 6 through 8. You have made him to have dominion Psalm 8, verse 6, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. So, the author of Hebrews, uh, David, is saying that God has created man a little lower than heavenly beings, in that we're physical ground-bound earthlings. But while we are frail and while we are insignificant, God has crowned us with glory and honor, verse 5, and has given us authority, dominion, verse number 6. And I have no doubt that the psalmist is referencing the creation account in Genesis 1. Following each day of creation, God declared his creation to be good. However, following the creation of man, he said that man was very good. And then man's distinction from the rest of creation is, is emphasized as man is given a divine image, is empowered with great responsibility over the rest of creation. All things have been put under our feet, verse number six says. And this is some of the dominion mandate that, that man created lower than the heavenly beings has this authority over creation. In the ancient Near East, to demonstrate superior, superiority or authority over a defeated enemy, a conqueror would come and place their foot on the neck of that one whom they've defeated, their enemy lying prostrate at, at his feet. In fact, the shepherd boy David did this very thing when he conquered Goliath, the giant. He went and, and stood over him and, and put his foot upon him in, in 1 Samuel 17. And also the, the Psalms use a similar image calling one's enemies a footstool. But, but here, recognize that our dominion over creation isn't because of our domination, it's not that we have conquered, it's not our own power or strength, but rather God has elevated us just a little lower than the heavenly beings and then the earth is placed under our feet, 
by God. And so we have this comparative study of theology and anthropology. And while we are mere mortals, while we are humanoids, while we are earthlings, dirt bags, as God created us, he's created us in a special way to have dominion over creation. Verse number nine, O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Now, I have not copied this for you, but Charles Spurgeon, he said this, like a good composer, the poet, the psalmist, returns to his keynote, falling back, as it were, into his first state of wondering adoration. What he started with as a proposition in the first verse he closes with a well-proven conclusion. He begins with the question, how excellent is your name in all the earth? He concludes with the same question, but he's stating a conclusion. And Spurgeon says, oh, for grace to walk worthy of that excellent name which we are pledged to magnify. So what's our takeaway this evening? In just the last few moments, our our takeaway as we read Psalm 8. There's two things I'd like to present by way of question, forms of question. They're not in your notes. The first is, what is your theology? That is, what is your view of God? What is your understanding, your doctrine of, of God? I think one of the reasons that the Genesis account of creation is so important that it is, is that if we do not, first and foremost, right out of the gate, recognize and acknowledge God as our creator, we will forever have a faulty view of God. Whether it is the, the macro creation of the expanse of the universe, or whether it's the micro creation of a newborn baby. God is our creator. God's glory in his creation is excellent. And that's where we begin. The whole creation-evolution debate is not an argument of intellectuals in science. It's, it's really a theological debate. Do we recognize God as our creator? How do we view, view God? We, we begin with him as our creator. Then we, we look at his names, Yahweh, Adonai, his other names. We look at his attributes, and you can name many of those. And we build a biography of God that is identifying the character, the conduct of God, the worth and the works of God. And as we build this biography of God, we recognize that God is excellent. How excellent is your name in all the earth? And this really drives our worship, this theological position. How do we view God or what is your theology? Second question for us then is what is your anthropology? That is, how do you view man? What is your understanding of man? And there's great confusion today over anthropology, manhood, and womanhood, and life. And it's common to speak of one's self-esteem. Poor self-esteem is often blamed by those who don't perform well in school or those who struggle with depression. However, I contend 
We don't necessarily need help with our self-esteem, but with our self-image. That is, we have a wrong self-image. We have been created by God in His image. We've been crowned with glory and honor. We've been given authority and dominion over creation so that we can say to our children, you are special because God created you in His image for His glory. That's a right self-image versus a right self-esteem. Man's greatest vice is not in thinking too poorly of himself, but in thinking too highly of himself. And that's depressing, to think more highly than you ought to think. We need to be mindful how God created us and ordained us to have responsibility over his creation. What an honor. And so the excellence of God, the significance of man, a comparative study of theology and anthropology. I'm going to give you a Bible example as we close of one who I think um, encountered this very juxtaposition. His theology and his anthropology collided, and that is none other than the prophet Isaiah. We spent the last year and a half studying the book of Isaiah. You know in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah was issuing judgment upon the nation of Judah He issued six different woes upon them. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, Judah, six different times. But then in Isaiah 6, Isaiah received a vision of God's throne room, and he turned that same judgment on himself, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah's theology collided with his anthropology and he recognized his own frailty but then what happened in Isaiah 6 you know the story well God said who shall I send and who will go for us Isaiah was able to accept the challenge to own the responsibility that God had called him and he said here am I send me as you think upon God and as you consider yourself Start with a high view of God and then thank the Lord for being mindful of you as created men and women and it will serve you well. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. We praise you so much for who you are. Your creation of the universe, your creation of each newborn baby. Lord, we thank you for being mindful of man In spite of our frailty, you have ordained, given us responsibility. And Lord, as the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 picked up in identifying Jesus as man, yet you had a great purpose and plan for him. I ask that you would encourage us with these things this evening, for I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.